I feel very privileged indeed to be spending the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show talking with someone who is inspiring in every sense of the word, Dr. Dominique Pritchett. Uh, she is someone who is a Kenosha native, a Carthage graduate, and currently completing her doctoral residency at Allendale Association. Uh, this is a social services organization based in, in Lake Villa, Illinois. And Dr. Pritchett also does work as a psychologist within the Kenosha Corrections System. Uh, the reason we are talking with Dr. Pritchett is not just because she is engaged in very, very important work, but also because her own personal story uh, is really an incredible one. And that is a story that she's going to be sharing uh, Tuesday evening, January 21st, at the Civil War Museum in downtown Kenosha. She will be participating in one of their so-called Courageous Conversation events, and her particular session is titled The Impact of Trauma on Black Youth in the Classroom and Beyond. And and in this, she's going to be talking about uh, black young people who often, for one reason or another, and through no fault of their own, find themselves, in a sense, stripped from the innocence of childhood and find themselves thrust uh, into all kinds of situations of responsibility that the typical young person just should not have to shoulder. And although they often manage to do so in very, very Im impressive fashion, often that experience leaves uh, scars and uh, even trauma. And this is one of the things that professionally interests her very much. And uh, she hopes one day to uh, open up a practice uh, in her hometown in which she can reach out to this particular population in a really dramatic way. Again, she will be speaking at the Civil War Museum on Tuesday evening, uh, January 21st at 6 p.m., but she is part of the morning show today. Dr. Dominique Pritchett, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you so much. So I made brief reference without going into much detail at all about the fact that your own personal story is quite uncommon. And uh, so I think that is where we need to begin. Uh, explain to our listeners, uh, in general, first of all, uh, what your childhood was like here in Kenosha. Um, yeah, definitely. As you said, uh, I am. I grew up in Kenosha. You know, I was born and raised in Waukegan, Illinois, but I've spent most of my uh, life here. Um, and when we moved here, I am one of seven children, um, and my mom was a single mother for a long time. We went through a lot of trials, a lot of tribulations, and that caused a lot of hardship. Um, one of the things I know about Kenosha is that it's a city of resources. However, a person has to be in the mindset to maximize those resources. And I think with my mother being pulled so many different ways, even with her own drug addiction, it was very challenging at times. So growing up, you know, until the day I turned 18 and went to college, um, I went to Carthage College, I was homeless off and on uh, throughout my life. Uh, we were uh, active participants in the Shalom Center in the ENDS program. And there were a lot of individuals that offered a lot of support. But being the second oldest child, oldest girl, there was a huge responsibility placed upon me. And that, that comes with so much pressure. 
And one of the things I'm going to talk about um, next week, and as I talk about in my life, and you know, I wrote my dissertation on it, my life's work is built on it, is parentification. Now I know there's a term for the role I was placed in. I was a parentified child. And what that means is that I did have my childhood stolen, and I was placed in an inverted hierarchy where I became the parent, not only to my siblings, but to my mother, to her friends. So I was more of a caregiver to everyone. So growing up um, in that type of situation, I had, I was responsible for getting the kids ready for school, cooking, cleaning, doing laundry, paying bills. And sure, you know, I think to everyday person, those are great good habits to have as a child, but at the expense of my own childhood, mm. that's what it costs. Um, how is it that that fell on your particular shoulders? Is it? at least in part, that that was something that at, at, the, at the time you sort of welcomed? And uh, were there no other siblings in a position to shoulder any of those responsibilities? How, how did so much end up falling specifically on your shoulders? I think naturally, because I was the oldest girl, and, you know, my brother had his own struggles uh, throughout his life and, you know, different bouts with incarceration. Um, so being the oldest girl and at that time the oldest child, because I was the, old, the only child, uh, the oldest child left in the home a lot of the time. Um, but I was always the strong one. You know, I like to believe that just naturally it fell on me because I kept tackling things and nobody saw the, the, the trauma and the pain that I was going through because I did it without complaint. Because if I didn't do it, who would do it? Hmm. I took on those, those responsibilities so my siblings could try to have a decent childhood uh, with, you know, within the best possibility, you know, being homeless off and on, being exposed to drugs, trauma, abuse. Um, I wanted to be their protector. And I asked myself, if not me, who? When you ended up being a uh parenticized uh, child taking on some of these roles of, 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 of parent, how did you know what to do? How did you learn the most sort of basic tasks that came with that kind of responsibility? Mm-hmm. When, when I was really young, I uh, lived with uh, my, my mom my, and myself and my siblings. We lived with our grandparents for a, a bit of a time. And, you know, my grandmother, she had this garden. So I was always used to fresh vegetables and how to pick the beans and how to, you know, just boil it till it looks done. So I was always in the kitchen growing up. So I had a sense of how to cook. Um, My mother and my grandmother, they were neat freaks. So I had a sense of, well, you get up every day, you do this. So having that exposure of a stable home at a period of time taught me those skills early on. And I'm just a very organized person in general. But having been in a home, an apartment, or, you know, one time we had a house uh, with the five siblings under me after my mom went to prison. You know, my mom sold to an undercover cop and she went to prison. So I was like, okay, now I have to put all of those skills to use. Um, So, you know, just a funny story. I remember cooking a roast. And I'm like, I have never cooked a roast, but I cooked it way past done and they enjoyed it. So I think this. Naturally, and even, you know, watching TV, uh, one of the shows I grew up on was the, uh, the Cosby show. Um, and, you know, I was like, that's the family I want. That's the family I want. So I tried to create that environment for my siblings. 
Hmm. And I remember episodes of, you know, uh, their children being yelled at for having a dirty room. So I yelled at my siblings for having a dirty room. So those were the kind of shows and exposures that helped me understand what it was like to run a home. Hmm. You experienced periods of homelessness. Uh, I wonder if you could take us inside what that experience is like, and in particular, what it was like for you at various periods during your childhood. I'm using air quotes that the listeners mm-hmm. can't see, but mm-hmm. but I mean, your, your childhood was in a sense uh, something that probably should not even be called a childhood because of uh, the kind of responsibilities that ultimately were, were thrust on you. But as you were growing up, uh, describe what it was like from time to time to be homeless. And what was it like to be homeless when you were younger versus when you were older and presumably had more of an understanding of what was going on? Mm-hmm. I remember, <clears throat> excuse me, we moved to Kenosha. I was in the fourth grade. Um and we moved with family members. You know, there's different degrees of homelessness. You know, you have your homelessness where you are living in a car, which I experienced with my family. You're walking the streets with your siblings. And there's transient home, uh, uh, levels of homelessness where you're sleeping wherever you can to survive. So in fourth grade, uh, when I was in fourth grade, we moved to Kenosha. And we lived with uh, a family member. And, you know, we grew up with this family member, so I always thought she was a fun family member. But when you live with people, the, the expectations can often become unrealistic, especially when you have nothing to offer them. So I'm in fourth grade, and we're sleeping on our pallet uh, in one, a one-bedroom, but we're expected to excessively clean. We are treated with less than respect because we need them, and they know that. So as a fourth grader, having to excessively clean, often running late for school, I had no clue what day of the week it was. And I've always been an intellect, so it's not that I didn't know my days. The days just went so slow or at times fast, I'm stuck in a room with my siblings, and three days have gone by and we didn't go to school. Wow. So that's the earliest memory I have when we uh, migrated to Kenosha. You know, that that uh, that ride from Waukegan to Kenosha felt like the longest ride of my life because we didn't travel growing up, a lot at least. So when I was in fourth grade, that was my early experience with like, wow, this isn't our place and we don't feel comfortable. So I recall huddling up with my siblings in a corner because once the adults got to drinking and drugging, the night got pretty crazy. I was the one to stay up at night, and I'd say, go to sleep, get your sleep. We would have a plate of food. That's what we were getting. You know, a few pieces of chicken, some potatoes, and we had to divvy it up between five to six children. Hmm. But in an adult's mind, they fed us. But in our mind, we're like, when are we going to eat again? Hmm. And in my line of work, I've witnessed so many children who have had these experiences. So to take someone through that mindset is so complicated because there's so many layers to it. There's a fear component to it. There's a a component of, I don't want this lifestyle anymore. There's a component of, I have to protect my siblings because who else will? So how does that relate? You know, that was my earlier experience, but, you know, throughout my teenage years, um, 
it had to be it had to be maintained a secret. You know, going throughout my uh, uh, high school career, I'm a graduate of Bradford, like you said, class of 2003. Going throughout that experience, no one could possibly know I lived in a homeless shelter. No one could possibly know that I got my you know latest gear and clothes out of the uh, lost and found. So I started to live a life of lies. You know, people would ask me, oh, what does your mom do? That is a very popular question, and it's the most devastating question. So at one point, my mom was a doctor. My mom was a lawyer. <laughs> so my, and I was like, okay, who did I tell what? You know, so that those were some of the experiences that I had to live in. But an even more vivid experience is being in the homeless shelter where you, three feet from you, there is a homeless individual with their own story, their own unique experiences staring at you. And there's no place to hide, in a sense. There's no place to hide. No place to hide. And so, you know, just to paint that picture... You know, you wake up early. This was when the ends program was around, uh, you know, more heavily. And, I, and sorry, and I want to just, uh, for ahead. anybody who doesn't understand, the ends mm. program yeah. uh, involved a number of churches in Kenosha that uh, would open their doors uh, to the homeless. And it would, you'd, I believe you would be in a different church basement, essentially, uh, various mm-hmm. nights of the week, staffed with volunteers from those various mm-hmm. congregations. So uh, go on, please. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that explanation, because I think that sheds some light to it. So think about the winters we have in Kenosha. You know, I remember walking down the street and, you know, every other month it's like, get, you know, my mom will come in a room, get everything you can, put it in a plastic bag. So I lived out of a plastic, uh, you know, grocery store bag for many months out of my life. I could fit, you know, pants, socks, shoes, or whatever I could in there. But when you think about the winners in, uh, in Kenosha particularly, um, to go to a different church every night, hauling all of these children, basic belongings, children and strollers at that point, um, it was difficult. And even back then, hey, if we missed the bus from the soup kitchen to get to the next church, guess what? We either had to sleep in a broke-down car or we had to walk there. Wow. What are your recollections of the people who, in a sense, were trying to help you in these places. I mean, uh, particularly with the INS program, in a sense, ministering uh, to you and your young siblings. What, what, what are your most powerful recollections about those interactions and the way that you felt like you were seen by them? In, within the ENDS program and the soup kitchen system uh, through the Shalom Center, whenever someone served me a meal, whenever someone gave me a new cot or a new um, uh, a mat to sleep on, they gave it to us with sincerity. Nobody asked for anything in return. And throughout my life, I have to do, I've had to do some indecent behaviors in order to survive, um, but no one asked for anything in return. And I thought that was the most peculiar. I'm like, okay, well, what are you going to pull me to the side and ask for? Um, but they did it with the utmost sincerity and love. You know, that was, an, um, you know, growing up with my grandparents, I knew what love felt like, but to get it from complete strangers was the most bizarre thing from me, for me. Hmm. So the volunteers, um, they, they, were, they were ready to serve. Um, and I think that was my early beginning of understanding of there is a God, 
you know, I grew up in the church as a little girl, but I also, after church, there was a bunch of hypocrites. But I thought that was a, the, a, a true example of these are God's people. Hmm. Um, and one of the most profound memories I have of someone, uh, an agency that played, um, uh, had a huge impact in our lives was the, um, at the time, it was the Urban Outreach Center, ELCA Urban Outreach Center, um, and now it's uh, ELCA Outreach Center. And, uh, you know, Mary Zorn and the staff there, they found our family. Um, we, were, we were homeless. We were walking. And so we went down to the uh, center to uh, warm up. And, you know, I started talking to this, this lady uh, just with the most beautiful spirit, and they were like, you're not going to walk tonight. And we're like, but we always walk. They put us in a hotel, and they got us all the chicken you can imagine, all the potato wedges, everything, and we ate ourselves sick. And from that point on, we stayed connected with that organization. Um, I like to think I'm a living face of the Outreach Center. Um, so they were so integral in our lives and helping us bounce back. Sure, there were times where we backslid or, you know, my mom would lose the apartment and so many other barriers would surface, but outreach center was significant in our lives and throughout even my college education they were significant hmm. so there were a lot of people that stepped up and said you know what you guys are member of members of this community and we, we hate to see you your family like this but they only could do what they could do hmm. and the last organization or you know group of people i want to say is the uh, kenosha human development services it's funny because um Byron, he, you know, he was the uh, form. He's the former executive director there. We were uh, walking in the blizzard one day, one evening, and we found this building. And you know, to a child, that that uh, that space constancy is so blurry. I'm like, I don't know. It was five minutes to an hour from now. But all I know, I was frozen. We knocked on this door. It's about eight o'clock and nine o'clock at night. And a jolly old guy answers the door. He let us in. He fed us, and he let us sleep there. And lo and behold. When I was in college, I interned there. I went on to work there for about nine years. And he said, I remember you. I didn't want to bring up how I knew you, but I knew you would make it. Hmm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Dominique Pritchett. And uh, we are talking right now about her own personal story, a story which she is going to be sharing uh, Tuesday evening, the 21st of January, 6 p.m., at the Civil War Museum in Kenosha as one of their Courageous Conversation events. Uh, her presentation is titled The Impact of Trauma on Black Youth in the Classroom and Beyond. Uh, and we'll, we'll dig into that in just uh, a moment. Dr. Pritchett, just to, to finish up your own personal story of growing up uh, with an early life that was uh, laced with uh, different kinds of deprivation and out-and-out uh, out -and -out homelessness, uh, for, for, for long periods of time. Um, if we had met you in the classroom, in the hallways of, for instance, Bradford High School uh, or middle school before that or whatever, um, you've already talked about how you really tried to keep a veil over the reality of what your day-to-day -day life was like. Um, would we have guessed uh, if we really looked closely uh, that there was something like this uh, in your life? And were there, was there anybody uh, in your life at school that knew what kind of challenges you were facing? Or was this 
something you managed to keep, as far as you know, a complete secret? Yeah. No, there were a few people that knew, uh, particularly my track coaches, um, because, um, you know, we often practice after school hours or when the last bus would go by, but they had to drop me off and they had to pick me up. So there was always this sense of, oh, my gosh, they're going to find out. So I would actually, for a long time, I would say, oh, well, just drop me off at the bus because I got to go pick something up at so-and-so's house. But, you know, after a while, they're like, no, 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 it's late. We're going to drop you off. And they're like, oh, this is a shelter. And I'm like, yeah. So my track coaches, uh, they knew. Um, I believe my basketball coach knew because there was uh, a few times where it um, – they would throw birthday parties for me. And I'm like, why am I the only one on the team that they throw surprise birthday parties for? And at one point I had to ask them to stop doing that because, you know, one of the things about me is I don't want handouts and I wasn't sure what their intent of doing it, uh, what what their intent was. So I had to ask them to stop doing those birthday parties because I did want to be singled out. But my basketball coach, my track coach, they knew. But with the day-to-day person, no. Absolutely not. Mm. You know, I maintain excellent grades. I always look presentable. And what, uh, some of the information I'm going to speak about uh, next week is those are the children we have to pay attention to. Those are the children that often the world forgets about. And I use the phrase, I was um, beyond the margins. Because when you think about marginalized individuals, you can see them. They're tangible. But I was a shadow within the margins mm. of an individual that was marginalized. Right. Yeah. And 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 someone yeah. might not even realize. No. Uh, and especially if, if people want to believe the best or believe the happiest version of somebody's yeah. story and might shy away from looking close enough to, to see the pain that was there. One of the things that I find really striking are a couple of things that you've just now touched on, and I knew this from your biography, that uh, that you were a fine student and you were a fine athlete. And there are those are two things that we often assume, and maybe with good reason, uh, are often not the case with a young person who is dealing with so much of this kind of trauma in their lives that yeah. uh, in many cases you're just worried about surviving and uh, and that doesn't leave a whole lot of time for schoolwork and reading and basketball practice. I mean, just the notion of being on a basketball team might might not even dawn on somebody who uh, or, or, or one might not think any of that could be possible. Let's talk mm-hmm. first about the fact that you managed to be a very good student through all of this. Uh, What was key to you managing to succeed as a student, uh, even in the midst of such a difficult and chaotic childhood? Absolutely. You know, growing up, uh, school, you know, people encouraged us to go to school when they felt it was convenient. Um, And college definitely wasn't spoken about. But I use school to maximize my resilience. And what I mean by that is I knew I would eat at school. I knew I would see people that wanted me to be there. So I used every resource to my full advantage to feel like a decent human being. 
and, you know, uh, I was part of the free meal program, but maintaining good grades, you know, when I, when I would learn about people who became doctors and I'm like, black people don't become doctors. And, you know, but I started doing research and sure, I know about historical figures like Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King, and ironically, our birthday is tomorrow. I share the same birthday as Martin Luther King. Um, and knowing that there have been amazing individuals who have excelled and broke down barriers beyond homelessness. You know, you talk about racism, discrimination, um, and I knew if I maintained an ounce of their strength, I could surpass this. So there was a strong burning desire to not let my condition become my conclusion. Hmm. And, you know, being an athlete, that was the way I managed the anger. I was angry as heck that someone stole my childhood involuntarily without my permission. Hmm. And so athletics was an arena where some of that anger could, in a sense, play itself out. Is that what you mean? Yes. You know, and I, you know, I like to think track was my primary sport, basketball. You know, I, I was I was an asset, but I would say track was my primary sport. Um, but it was a way to release all this built up anger. And in addition to the anger, you know, actually, now that I say it out loud, it was probably depression manifesting as anger. Hmm. So, yes, it was my outlet. But here's the thing. You asked me uh, the question earlier, would anyone ever guess? Those who did know outside of my coaches, they would have guessed, but they knew something was off. There were times where I had to borrow track cleats. There were times where I had holes in my running shoe. So some people were like, what is going on? But did those people stop and say, and this speaks to all the young people out there, stop and ask, what is happening? What is What is going on? What yeah. what is what what is the what is the truth behind the happy facade that perhaps you yeah. are trying to uh, present to the world? It, mm-hmm. it it occurs to me too that that uh, there are many cases in which uh, a uh, a track coach or a choir director or whoever it might be in terms of someone overseeing uh, extracurricular activities might set up very strict rules. That mm-hmm. might make it all but impossible for a young person in your kind of circumstances to be a participant. And uh, I should think one of the lessons here is to make sure that you are not setting up rules and regulations and requirements uh, that might make all kinds of sense on the surface, but that might ultimately disqualify uh, all kinds of talented people who need such activities from being able to make it a part of their lives. Yeah. And I think some of the uh, small things that schools and other organizations can do to speak to what you just said was be conscious and be intentional about announcing, hey, if you're not able to pay for the student fees, because I know they were expensive back in my day, so I don't know what they cost today. Um, Be conscious and intentional of making that announcement of, hey, but if you're unable to pay for that, talk to me. You know, I was not I was not shy about letting people know, oh, well, you know, my mom didn't get paid this time around. Do you think you can waive that? But me being an asset to the track team and to, you know, my school and all of that, there were a lot of waivers happening. But people have to put that stuff out there because we can't assume all young people are resilient and able to navigate all the systems that's within their school. Hmm. You know, but also such as on basketball teams, I know it's pretty cool for everybody to have matching shoes. I know a good pair of tennis shoes is running about 100 bucks. Don't assume everyone can afford those matching team shoes. Hmm. 
So at what point did it dawn on you that you might be able to go to college? I suspect that that is something that, that some people in your position might not believe would be a workable possibility at all. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when you first began to think that that is something that you could experience and also wanted to experience? Definitely. Um, I, we went on a college tour. We went to a lot of the UW systems and uh, school system, uh, school, sorry, colleges and schools. And um, it felt right. You know, when I spoke with people like, well, how did you pay for school? They're like, oh, we got this thing called loans. And I was like, my mom, I don't have to pay for it because she's not going to pay for it or we don't have money. When, I, when it started to become realistic that this opportunity was uh, available to me, it started to make more sense that I can start living in a college mindset. You know, I remember at Bradford, um, and even into my uh, years into high school, nobody still talked about college. Um, and I don't know if, uh, you know, people don't think or they assume everyone knows about it. I did not really know about it. But, um, you know, I remember uh, Willie Days at Bradford High School. He said, you know, Dominique, you're something else. He knew my story. And he said, let me show you the scholarship. He showed me that one. He showed me a few more. And I said, well, what are these? He said, this is free money to go to school. So when people started to take an active interest in basically shoving college down my in my eyes and down my throat, it was more like, geez, you guys really think I can do it? So it dawned on me that, you know what, maybe this is my breakthrough. Maybe this is my breakout if you really want to conceptualize it in terms of being in, you know, a child locked up, having my mind locked up. Uh, but it dawned on me, this is my ticket to freedom. Hmm. Was it difficult uh, once you finally made the decision uh, to go to Carthage, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, is right here in Kenosha, still to some extent you probably felt like you were leaving uh, your younger siblings? Or by that point in time had uh, the situation with the family, at least to some extent, stabilized? It was an extremely difficult uh, decision. So not only within my life, but what I uh, what I understand and some of the things I've researched, there are many African Americans who struggled uh, with the guilt of leaving their uh, family and their community. Um, and so there was a huge guilt factor that uh, caused me to teeter totter. And I thought, okay, well, Carthage is right in Kenosha, not that far. And I did get a partial track scholarship to uh, run at Carthage. Uh, So I had a coach, you know, I started speaking with him my uh, senior year. And so that was a huge part as well of me uh, choosing Carthage. But I did get accepted into a number of schools, historically black colleges and universities and schools down south. Um, But I chose to stay in Kenosha because I was close enough to them, but yet I was was out of the chaos. And knowing that when I uh, graduated high school, my mother wasn't there. My mother was in rehab. And um, it just so happens that most of the adults were um, intoxicated or high on the day of my graduation. But I had uh, the individual who I considered a father figure at that time. I had my mentor. Um, I believe Pat uh, or Mary Zorn was there. So there were a lot of people who were there to support me on that day and um, even to see me off to college. But going to Carthage was, like I said, close enough. But even when I got to college, I would still even bring my siblings on campus to feed them, to do their laundry, to have sleepovers. I'm like, if I can give you 48 hours of relaxation, 
where you're not constantly hypervigilant and in this trauma state, that is my gift to you. But Mm. I refuse to drop out of college. Wow. We're speaking with Dr. Dominique Pritchett, a native of Kenosha, a graduate of Carthage College, and uh, uh, a guest of the Civil War Museum on uh, tomorrow night, Tuesday evening, January 21st, 6 p.m. She's going to be giving a talk called The Impact of Trauma on Black Youth in the Classroom and Beyond. So your interest professionally now uh, in terms of the work that uh, you are doing and want to continue to do as as a psychologist uh, in the Kenosha Correction System and perhaps uh, in other arenas as well uh, is going to give you the opportunity, and it probably already has, to reach out to children who, in a sense, have lost the childhoods that uh, that should have been theirs, but were in mm-hmm. a sense taken from them for for uh, for various reasons. Um, first of all, let's talk about that word trauma and why you want us to think in those terms about mm-hmm. children, including yourself. Uh, experiencing trauma. How are you using that term here? Trauma is a result as a set of circumstances, uh, whether they can be brief circumstances or prolonged circumstances, developmental or complex circumstances that causes an individual to struggle mentally. Um, But it's not just uh, they're struggling with it. It has a lasting effect on their ability to function in relationships, to cope, to uh, maintain their day-to-day routine. Some of the symptoms of trauma are nightmares, flashbacks, hypervigilance. You know, you hear a door slam and you're easily startled. Many individuals associate trauma with uh, war, uh, veterans uh, coming back, um, and PTSD. That's a common one, PTSD. Um, But trauma can manifest in many different environments and through many different circumstances. So if we take PTSD in terms of what we believe about war, put that in terms of it can be applied to many individuals, uh, whether it's homelessness, physical or sexual abuse, exposure to trauma, repeated trauma. So I use that term uh, with many layers to it, Hmm. from uh, brief trauma all the way to prolonged or uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. I think one thing that is interesting to think about in relation to your own story is the trauma that you experienced as in effect the de facto caregiver of your of your family i mean you were the closest thing that your younger siblings had to a parent uh mm-hmm. the trauma that you experienced in being thrust into that experience versus the trauma that your younger siblings surely experienced themselves um what would you say would be the, the biggest difference, if you think there is any significant difference, between the trauma that they experienced versus the trauma that you experienced? That's a great question. A lot of the major trauma, I believe, I, don't, I can't speak to their stories, happened probably during the years of when they were chronically, when we were chronically homeless. So that trauma, having to receive the brunt of it and having to become that parentified figure, so mine was very direct. It was pervasive. 
And I believe theirs was more of the um, residual trauma of a lot of people not having their stuff together, um, the residual trauma of, okay, well, we're, we have unresolved trauma, but we pass it on to you. So I believe they have a residual trauma, um, if that makes any sense. No, it does. Absolutely. Um, when did you first start looking at your own life, I mean, your early life, and think of it in terms of having experienced trauma? I mean, was that not until you began studying the field of psychology or even earlier than that, did you have some awareness that you were or had experienced trauma because of the early life you had to live? Well, one of the things to keep in mind, and I do want to offer a point of clarification. I uh, realize you've, uh, you know, identified me as a psychologist uh, twice. I want to be very clear so there's no misinterpretation. I'm a postdoc residency, and once I get my 3,000 or my, uh, my clinical hours, um, at my residency, I can apply to take the test to be a psychologist. Ah, so, I'm, yes. Thank I'm you for the clarification. Here. Yep. Yes. Um, but you got to keep in mind, I, I didn't know this life I was living had, or the experiences I was living had a name to it. Nobody said, hey, I think she has trauma. So my early awareness was that this is not normal. This life sucks, and I want a new one. You know, so I knew uh, when doors slammed or people screamed, I would ball up and just like, no, please, you know, assuming someone is going to hurt me. Or when uh, I heard noise, assuming my mom was going to come in a room and say, grab everything you can, we got to go. So I had the experiences of what it was like to be traumatized. But you're absolutely correct. Not until my uh, college years, I was like, oh, my goodness, there is a name for this. And that was one of the most, it was a very scary process. It was an exhausting process because even I even brought these experiences into college. I'm like, I got to trust sleeping next to somebody in a dorm, like a, what, a 10 by 12, whatever size dorm. I have to trust this person that they won't steal my stuff, that they won't, you know, come near me. So I started experiencing those um, symptoms quite heavily. Um, so I wasn't sleeping well. Um, I, I just struggled with uh, interacting with certain people because, again, I always thought people wanted something from me. So I believe it was my sophomore year. Um, I, uh, I went to counseling. I went to counseling and, you know, it was even after a break, a breakup with a, a guy. And so I went to counseling and I let loose because we what triggered that was we were doing the genogram. Like the genogram is basically uh, a hierarchical uh, system to tell, you know, who's all in your family. And the part where I had to get to where that who was my father box, mm. I've never met my biological father. All I know is we both have green eyes, and I know nothing about the man mm. to this day. Mm. You know, so that even had an impact. You know, as a young adult growing up without a strong male figure, I had to learn the hard ways of what it took for a man or what I demanded from a man for respect and decency. I had to learn that the hard way because I didn't have that father figure in my life. Hmm. So, you know, those things, when I, when I couldn't fill in that box, then I looked at, geez, there's a lot of fathers to everyone else in my family, but my box is empty. All of that combined, and I broke. Hmm. I was actually in my sophomore year in college. The resident assistant found me in my closet crying. And so they said, you got to go to counseling. And that is when I started to piecemeal 
geez, there are names to this sadness. It's called depression. There's a name to the hypervigilance, being easily startled, having nightmares, having flashbacks, as though that trauma and that homelessness is right there. Hmm. Wow. So what an interesting experience for you to be in a position professionally to reach out to others who have experienced at least some of the same things that you have. Is that why you entered this field in the first place, or (laughs) did that only dawn on you, in a sense, after the fact? Um, I... Both, both. I entered this field because going back to an earlier question, who were those individuals that made an impact that, you know, were very helpful? And I was like, you know what? I want to be one of those helpers. So my life experience, you know, uh, challenged me to study the field of social work. My bachelor's and my master's is in social work. Um, So my life experiences uh, encouraged me that I can be a helper too. I had a, I have a lot of love to give, but I wanted to give it for the, to those individuals who wanted it. Um, and while I'm studying, uh, while I was in school studying, it sharpened my understanding that this is what I'm meant to do for the rest of my life. Hmm. But I knew I couldn't fully do it until I started working on my own healing. Right. We sometimes hear about how uh, one of the most serious issues involving uh, the uh, uh, populations that we're talking about here is uh, a lack of connection with, for instance, mental health resources and and help with some of these really deep emotional issues that certain people might be facing. Um, What are your thoughts about that? Uh, and about the possibility of trying to uh, extend met- mental health services to populations that might be a little bit wary or might not understand in fully the, the kind of things that are offering and why it's so important to, to accept that kind of help. Absolutely. One of the things I like, uh, I know about Kenosha is we are a city of, we, uh, Kenosha is a city of resources. Uh, so I definitely want to, I never want to minimize what the city is doing to elevate people's wellness and their health and their ability to live abundantly. So I never want to minimize that. Um, however, you know, I've been a clinician for, you know, nearly 14 years now. And there is a lack of representation within our mental health systems in terms of ethnic diversity. Um, you know, I do have a lot of clients that come to me and be like, hey, I found you. You're black. I'm black. Let's see if this thing works. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, hey, if that's what got you through the door. But that's not to say that because of that uh, automatic, you know, visual cultural connection, I am the right clinician for you. But we have to become a quite creative, but we have to have true representation in the field in order to reach some of those uh, communities that are still to this day leery about do I tell you this? Don't I tell you this? Because in a lot of black and brown communities, we're still taught you do not take this out of the house. And uh, what I have adopted as an adult, the only secret that's kept in my house is what you're getting for Christmas. Hmm. 
You know, so we still have, there's a mindset of we we don't talk about these things. One, when we look at the data, it definitely shows a pretty disproportionate of individuals being misdiagnosed, overdiagnosed, and underdiagnosed. So if those have been the uh, similar experiences of their friends and family, that does not open that door for them to want to come in. And I, I love the field of uh, therapy or uh, offering that space, that safe therapeutic space. Um, but there, there, there does come a point where we have to stop using the language of cultural competency because competency insinuates that, oh, well, I read an article about how to work with, you know, this population, so I'm good. No, we mm-hmm. have to continuously be aware what are the issues that are impacting uh, this community or this particular uh, population. Because if we're not watching the news and we're approaching therapy the same way as we did five years ago, we have done certain populations a huge disservice. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. And it also occurs to me that when somebody is living in poverty, whatever their skin color, uh, it's only natural for them to think that therapy is something that people with a whole lot of money uh, Mm. might think about uh, seeking out. But for someone who is just eking out their own survival, uh, uh, one, one can't blame them for not even entertaining the notion of perhaps I need therapy in my life when, mm-hmm. when what you mostly need are groceries and a yeah. safe place to, to, to live. I suspect that that is a challenge as well to kind of uh, build some bridges so people understand that uh, this kind of help uh, should be and is available to anybody. Definitely. And I would say over the past, you know, few years, a number of years, there has been a huge push towards integrated um, integrated health models where we are uh, merging a lot of medical services with mental health and vice versa. You know, we have to look at the, the difference between those two fields. People are more likely to go to a doctor because they will get something and take something away immediately. So if we have the doctors as our front line encouraging these types of services, it becomes more of a priority. I like to think of it as my mental health vitals. When we go to the doctor, they put us on that embarrassing scale every visit, and you know, they do our vitals. So we have to encourage that push and continue to dismantle a stigma. Um, as it relates to people seeking mental health services, but you hit it on the nail a lot. Uh, you hit it on the nail that people have to pri- they're prioritizing. They're kind of like, hey, even with you know this insurance, uh, Medicaid insurance, my copay is five dollars. Do you know what I can get for five dollars? Hmm. You know, or even private insurance. Um, you know, I've seen copays ranging with good insurance from eighty dollars to a hundred dollars for a one-hour session. Wow. You know, so I think it speaks to people are in survival mode. It's not that they don't believe that um, therapy services can benefit them. It's a matter of where can I allocate my resources and time. And if you take my childhood as an example, my mom had, uh, I, I keep saying five children because my oldest brother went on and did his own thing. Um, so she had six kids at the time. Nowadays, you can't put all of those six kids in a transportation van. You get to bring one child. What am I going to do with the rest of my kids to go to my mm. appointment? Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of things uh, with which to contend. And, of course, yeah. it's it's not a, just a matter of person to person, but also looking at the whole system 
and yeah. uh, and uh, the opportunities that it affords people to uh, to make their lives better. Boy, <laughs> you've given us a lot to think about in this conversation, and I know that there'll be still more uh, for us to think about uh, yeah. from the talk that you're going to be giving uh, tomorrow night. Again, tomorrow night, Tuesday, January 21st, 6 p.m., at the Civil War Museum in downtown Kenosha, a conversation, one of the courageous conversation events there, a talk titled The Impact of Trauma on Black Youth in the Classroom and Beyond. And uh, you can contact the Civil War Museum for more information. Dr. Dominique Pritchett, your story is amazing. <laughs> and you are amazing, already doing amazing things. And I'm so glad that you made time in your schedule to tell your story on the morning show today. And I wish you very well with all of the good things that you are doing now for your community and the world. And thanks again for being part of the morning show today. Thank you so much.